Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning. Welcome to Wildwood. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Uh, we're going to actually be covering Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11 in overview fashion this morning, uh, but we're going to start at the end. Uh, a number of years ago, both of our daughters, when they were about four years old, uh, each of them separately, uh, we gave them, uh, we, we paid for swimming lessons. Now, the place that we took them uh, to do their swimming lessons, they uh, actually had, it was like a child-parent swim lesson tandem combo thing. Uh, so you get in the pool with them and help the instructors, you know, have your child do the things that they're supposed to do in order to learn how to swim. You know, for most people, this was a joyous time of, you know, splashing and, and, you know, enjoying the pool. For both my children, for some reason or another, hated it. They couldn't stand it, and they made their feelings known when, you know, the instructor said, you know, put your face in the water. And they were like, they didn't, they weren't going to have any of that. Jump in, trust me, I got you, I'll catch you. Don't worry about it. Nope, weren't going to do it. Screaming, fits, temper tantrums. Uh, do the stroke, do that stroke. Nope, not going to do it. After the first day with both of them, it was a miracle that I wanted to go back and do it again because I hated every minute of it, and so did they. Um, and ultimately, they thought I was trying to kill them. But <laughs> they, and they let me know that this was not fun, we don't want to come back. But I knew better. I knew the end from the beginning. I knew that it was going to be good for them to learn how to swim. They were going to be safer, they were going to have fun, and now, in present day, fast forward to today, both my kids know how to swim. It's hard to get them out of the pool. They love going swimming. In fact, my oldest daughter, Mia, is a lifeguard um, because she can swim, uh, and she earns money doing that, and she enjoys it. Um, you would never have guessed that on day one of swim lessons. What was, it about the, what was it about the fact, why did they not want to do swim lessons? They didn't, it was because they didn't know that it was good for them. They didn't, know, they didn't know better. They didn't have the life experience that I had. And ultimately, they just didn't trust me. They didn't trust that I knew what was best and that, uh, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter that they didn't understand. What mattered was what was best for them. And I did what was best for them by continuing on in swim lessons. There's a very similar thing that's happening in our passage here in Romans 9 through 11, where God is much more sovereign than I was over their decision to, to swim or to not swim, or to learn to swim or not learn to swim. God is sovereign over everything. He is in complete control at all times over everything that happens, both good and bad. And sometimes it's difficult to understand that. It's very difficult to understand how that works. And what Romans 9 to 11 is going to communicate to us is that it doesn't matter whether or not we understand it. God is still sovereign, he's still on his throne, and he will work out everything for our good. How do we get there? Um, I've already mentioned the word sovereignty, that is the overall theme of Romans 9 through 11. 
Um, and in, in, in this passage, Paul is going to ask, just like he did in uh, Romans 6 through 8, he, he asked leading questions and then gave answers after that. Uh, there's five of those types of questions in Romans 9 through 11 as well. So we're going to, again, use that as our structure. Paul's structure is our structure. I'll point those questions out to you. We'll answer them. Again, just as there was tension in Romans 6 through 8 between God's, uh, God's um, righteousness and his sinlessness being imputed to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son and our belief in him, and our, uh, our lives still having sin in them. And so even though while we're dead to sin, we still sin because we still have sin in our flesh, and that won't be taken care of until glory, finally and fully, we still live in that tension of how do we then live. So also, in our passage today, we're going to see that there is a great tension between God's sovereignty, how he is in complete control of everything, and yet human responsibility, how we are still responsible for our actions. Uh, and so, again, great tension that is in these passages as well. And we don't, we don't have to understand it, but we do have to believe it because God's word says it. It says it over and over and over again, all from Genesis to Revelation. It talks about how sovereign God is, and it never really explains full enough for us to under, really understand exactly how it works. It just assumes that we believe it because of who God is. In order to understand what we're going to cover today, it's helpful to review where we've been. So week one of our foundation series, we talked about sin. Uh, Romans 1 through 3 talks about how all of us are sinners. We all stand before God deserving his wrath, and, and, and without, without him intervening in some way, we are deserving of his wrath. Uh, Romans 3 through 5 the last half of 3 through chapter 5 talks about justification. Justification was the main theme. Justification being uh, the means by which Jesus Christ died for our sins in our place. And because of that, if, our, if we believe in him, we have Christ's righteousness, we have his sinlessness, and we are being made to be like him and one day will be with him and be made completely righteous in him. And there's a great tension in there. This week we're talking about God's sovereignty. And ultimately God's sovereignty was alluded to at the end of chapter 8, where it says that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, those, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He would call, he would also justify, he would also glorify. That is setting up the fact that God is sovereign over every aspect of our salvation from before time began and until all eternity. God is sovereign over our salvation. So that's where we find ourselves today. And here's the thing. When people say, and I've heard a lot of you say this to me, I love Romans. Romans is my favorite book. I can't wait till we get into it. Most of you aren't talking about chapters 9 to 11. <laughs> because 9 to 11 is it's hard. I struggled with this passage this week. It, it's how do you, how do you communicate how infinite God is, how sovereign he is, how in control he is, when I don't even understand it myself, all right? But we have to go to God's word, and so let's do that as we go. We're going to start again at uh, Romans 11.33. Romans 11.33 to 36 summarizes the content and gives the why for why God is sovereign and why Romans 9 through 11 is true, all right? Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Think about the first line there, the depth of, a, of the riches of God. How deep are God's riches? How deep are an infinite God's riches? Infinite. How deep, how deep are his wisdom and his knowledge? How deep, and how deep is an infinite God's wisdom and knowledge? It's infinite, right. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Think about that. If, an, if he's an infinite God and he has infinite wisdom and knowledge, there's nothing that he doesn't know. Like, who can, who can go to him and say, oh, here's some advice for you, God. And he would say back, oh, thanks. I didn't know that before and I'm glad you came to me. No. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Again, infinite God, infinite riches. You're never going to give him a gift or do anything for him where he goes, oh man, I'm glad you did that because if you didn't, I wouldn't have been able to. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that verse in and of itself encapsulates the entire message of Romans 9 through 11. Everything that exists is from him. It was created through him and it was created to him, in other words, for his glory. And he ends the verse and that chapter with this, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So what we're looking at here, and we have to have, and the reason why we started with that is because we have to start with who God is. God is so far behind, beyond our comprehension, so powerful, so amazing, so infinite that we can't even understand how infinite and powerful he is. And so we have to start with at least that understanding that we can't comprehend how big our God is. With that in mind, let's jump back to Romans chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll start off the first 13 verses of Romans are kind of an introduction. They're still kind of continuing the thought from chapter 8, but also starting new material, and he's introducing this new material of God's sovereignty. We'll start reading verse uh, 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is... God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I want to draw your attention to a couple things about this passage. If we were to summarize verses 1 to 13, uh, we, would, we would summarize it by saying that God sovereignly chose his people Israel to be his people. Uh, that, is, that is what is being communicated in general. With that in mind, Paul says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because in large part, God's chosen people, of whom he is a part, have rejected his chosen promise, the Christ. Um, and, and he has unceasing anguish and even says for, that he, he wishes that he could be a curse, cut off from Christ, so that they could know him. That's a, that's a crazy amount of commitment to, to share in the gospel, right? Uh, I also want you to notice that, it, that the phrase, who is God over all, in verse 5. This is... 
perhaps the clearest instance in, in the Bible where God, or, where Jesus Christ is called out as, as God. There is, no, there is no ambiguity here. It literally says, in the flesh is Christ, who is God over all. So think about that. Jesus Christ, God over, he's literally saying that everything that the Father is and the Holy Spirit is, Christ is sovereign over all. Um, that is the person who died on the cross for your sins and for mine, God over all. Uh, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why does, why does he have to even say that? Why does he have to even point out the fact that God's word didn't fail? Well, it's because he's talking about God's chosen people who have rejected him. Uh, there is a tension there between God calling them to be his people or calling him his people and them rejecting him. Right? And he goes on to explain, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. Uh, I want you to notice a couple things there. He's talking about children of flesh, children of promise. Abraham had a number of children. Only one of them was through Sarah. His name was Isaac. He had other children through Hagar and, and his uh, second wife, uh, Keturah. They also became great nations. Many of them did. However, there was only one child that was a child of promise, and that was Isaac through Sarah and ultimately Jacob. Um, but what is, what is the promise that he's talking about? He, he, uh, he identifies it in chapter 9. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return. And he lists seven things that are included in the promise. A couple of them are actually repeated things for emphasis. But here's the seven things that are, uh, are involved in the promise of this said child. Sarah shall have a son, number one. And not only so, but also Rebekah, who had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So Isaac was Rebekah's husband. Though they were not yet born, third thing, so they, they, Rebecca and Isaac's ch uh, children hadn't even been born yet, and the promise had already been made. Number four, had done nothing either good or bad, so it wasn't based on their behavior that God chose either Jacob or Esau, who haven't been named yet. Fifth, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, in other words, election is a word that occurs over and over in the Bible, and yet many people want to reject it as a doctrine somehow, but it, it's spoken of over and over again that God chooses some people for his own and chooses others not to be his own. Six, not because of works, again, not because of things they had done, that's repeated. And seven, another thing that's repeated, because of him who calls. Again, it's God's responsibility to call people to himself. So she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And this is, uh, this is where it gets hard, right? Like, do I understand what it means when, when God's word, his word says, and this is quoted from Genesis 23, 25, 23, and uh, again repeated in Malachi 1, 2 through 3, uh, this is God's word. This, it literally says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What does it mean? What does God mean when he says that? I'm going to stand before here, here, here today and say, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand what that means. And, but it is that question that we have in our mind that is carried through the rest of this passage that is so difficult for us to understand and so difficult to preach. 
uh, because it brings up other questions in our minds, like, is, is it right for God to do that? Right? Funny you should ask, because Paul anticipates he would ask that question, and that's what he asks. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What's his answer? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We don't have any problem with that. We love the fact that God has mercy and compassion on whoever he wills, especially when it's on me, right? I, I love it when God has mercy on me. So then it depends not on human exertion, will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, we have no problem with that. We love the fact that God has mercy outside of ourselves because we all know that if it were up to us to secure perfection and righteousness, we would fall short. We would fail. We don't, we don't have any problem with the, God, the fact that God has mercy on us in spite of our poor behavior. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, this is a, I want you to, to notice that is connected to God's glory. Uh, that very thing. And we have no problem with that. We have no problem with God wanting to glorify himself through people, even, even bad people. We don't, have a, we don't have a problem with the fact that God wants to glorify himself and that he uses people to do so. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. We love that. that he loves, we love that he has mercy and he hardens whoever he wills. That's where we bristle. That's where we tend to want to question, is this, is this, is this right, God? Is it, is it right? And so the, these four verses here, if we, if we wanted to, to summarize them, we would say God is just to glorify himself by showing mercy to some and not to others. That's a really hard thing for a human being like myself to say out loud, that God is just to glorify himself by showing mercy to some and not to others. The question then becomes, can God sin? And the answer is no, God cannot sin. And so when he shows mercy to some, he is not sinning. And when he, when he does not show mercy to some, he is still not sinning. Um, does God really, is this only something that Paul has made up, an, an idea that only Paul has made up? No, it's found all throughout the Bible. There are many verses. I'm going to only give you one. Uh, for this morning. That's Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And imagine if God is able to control the heart of a king of a land who has ultimate authority over his jurisdiction, he is able to also control your heart and do whatever he wills with it as well. Also a very hard thing for us to understand and believe. Which leads us to think, you know, if, if God controls your heart and my heart, ultimately, because he is sovereign and able to do that, why does he, why does he find fault? That's the next question that we, it's funny that we should want to ask that, because that's what he asked. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And he answers that question with a question. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the, and then he gives an illustration of, of this, saying, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, and I want you to notice this word, prepared. Prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has, what? Prepared beforehand for glory. In both cases, both the objects of mercy and the objects of wrath and destruction were prepared. What is behind the idea of prepared other than it had to be done beforehand? So in both the case of God showing mercy to some and showing wrath to others, in both cases God not only knew it, but prepared them for it. That is hard to understand, is it not? Um, well, I'll go back to that question, like, what is, what is it like, I mean, what is it, what would we be doing if we are questioning or answering back to God? What does that look like in reality? Uh, you're probably wondering why this picture uh, showed up up here. Uh, this, is a, this is a picture that I actually took when we lived in Vegas at the Valley of Fire. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I liked how it turned out, so I, I had, uh, did some work on it in Photoshop, adjusted the colors and, and cropped it, and eventually I found a place for it in our, our present house where I like where it, it goes, I like where it looks, I like the size, I like everything about it. It would be silly, it's just as silly for me to talk back to God. Um, it would be just as silly for me to talk back... What's, what's going on? Who, who is that? Oh. Uh, so, uh, you're, you're talking to me now. I mean, you can see that I'm, I'm busy here preaching the word, but, I mean, since you've already interrupted, what is it that I can do for you? I have a complaint to file. Oh, you do? And uh, what, pray tell, could you possibly have to complain with me about? Oh, uh, is that, I mean, is that all? I mean, is there anything, I mean, what else could you possibly think was wrong with you? Um, couldn't you make my colors pop a bit more? Oh, and so now you don't like your colors? Uh, you don't like how big you are? I mean, here, here's the thing. It doesn't really matter what you want. The only thing that matters is that I like the way you are. I designed you. I, I designed you for a specific purpose, a place in my house. I like the way you look there. You match the colors there. So your colors are, in fact, exactly the way I intended them. I uh, appreciate Noel for helping me with, with that <laughs> illustration. Um, and I hope you get the point. It's just as ridiculous for me to say, God, why did you, why did you destine some people for wrath and for destruction when he is an infinite God and he understands the end from the beginning? It's the same as when my, you know, my daughters didn't understand why I was giving them swim lessons. They thought I was trying to kill them. They thought I was being a bad dad, but in reality, I was being a good dad. Um, it is so much more significant that God is that kind of person, that he understands the end from the beginning. And it's crazy uh, to talk back to God. And that's why he says in verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Um, if we wanted to summarize verses 19 through 29, God is just to glorify himself by holding people accountable for their unbelief, even when he controls their heart. That is a difficult thing to understand, but it is what God's word says. 
please don't shoot the messenger. Um, and, and I believe it. I believe that what God says is true. We're going to jump down to, now we'll keep going. Um, he quotes from Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. I encourage you to read through Hosea sometime and, and see what, what God's love for his people who rejected him is like. Uh, he, he equates it to, to uh, marrying a prostitute who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. Um, and that is God's love for his people. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And so notice that God is saying that all of his people are called and only yet a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring and would have, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The third question, that leading question that he asked then is, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? So the real question, there's a statement in between the first question and why. Why is the question here? Why did they not attain righteousness? He gives his answer right away. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Why is it that Israel did not believe? It's because of their un... Why is it that they, they did not attain righteousness? It's because they did not believe. Uh, belief is key here. And if we're going to summarize uh, these next several, several verses... Um, we would say that genuine saving faith requires heart belief. Um, and that, that, would, that would apply to uh, all of the passage, but especially chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, as we, we keep on going here. But uh, first, there's the stumbling stone. What is the stumbling stone? He answers that question by quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, the rock isn't a thing, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The very uh, flesh that came th from their line, from their race, the Christ, they've stumbled over him. They did not believe in his salvation that he provided through his death, burial, and resurrection. Chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Who believes. That is important. Belief is important in this section here. And I want you to notice something, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Uh, we, we said last week that, that ultimately, as Christians, it's not that we no longer need to be concerned about the law, it's that the law is fulfilled in us through the person of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 3, it reminded us that the law is, is, uh, is upheld through our faith, that it doesn't go away, but it is upheld. 
Uh, and here it says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It's saying the same thing. We don't, the law is not a means to righteousness. It, it, it helps us see our sin and our need for Christ's righteousness. How is that attained? To everyone who believes. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Is that possible? No, it's not. Human history has proven that no one does good. No, not even one. And if you, if you stumble at one point, James says, you're guilty of breaking all of it. And I think we can all agree that all of us have stumbled at more than one point. And so we need Jesus. But the righteousness based on faith, verse 6 says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into the heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, there's nothing you can do or say that is as effective in saving your soul from judgment as Christ coming to earth and dying for your sins and his resurrection. You can't do possibly enough to warrant your salvation. Only God can save you. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. Again, you keep hearing this word heart. There's a heart belief that is necessary for justification, which leads us to the question, um, is there a type of faith or a type of belief that doesn't save? And having just been through James, you all know who have been here, coming here for a while, you know the answer to that question. Uh, uh, James 2.14 uh, specifically tells us, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer that comes in that text is no, it cannot save him. How, is a, how, does a, how do you gain a faith that works? It's through a heart belief. It's through a transformation of your heart through the person of Jesus. Who controls the heart? God does. God controls your heart. He controls, he controls your ability even to believe. Again, a hard truth. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, verse 11, will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now we've moved into uh, verses uh, 12 to 21 here, and if we wanted to summarize these verses as we read through them, it's that man is responsible to respond in faith and entrusted by God to proclaim the gospel. Again, there's this tension that exists here. God is sovereign over all, and yet he still calls us to be, uh, to be responsible to believe and to share the gospel. We work with him in his ultimate sovereign plan because he asks us to. Let's keep reading. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. All right? Again, those, that passage there, those verses show us that God, that, that faith comes through believing, believing comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. 
we have to believe God's word, but we also, once we believe it, are asked to go and share it. Why would we need to share it if God controls the hearts? Couldn't he just, couldn't he just zap everybody into belief without the gospel ever being proclaimed? Yes, he could, but he doesn't. Why? Because there's a tension between God's sovereignty and man's ability uh, to will himself as well, all right? Between God's will and man's will. God's will is sovereign, but he calls us to exercise ours in order to preach the gospel. Uh, it's a very important balance. Do I understand how it works? No, I don't. I don't understand how it works. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. But the Bible says it, and I believe it. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. That's Psalm 19.4 that he's quoting there. The context of Psalm 19.4 is very significant for the book of Romans as a whole. Um, here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In other words, God's creation speaks to his sovereignty, speaks to his power, speaks to his infiniteness. There doesn't need to be any words. It speaks for him. And so as Romans 1 makes, as Paul made the point in Romans 1, um, everyone is without excuse because they can see God's handiwork and should be able to ascribe it to the fact that God created everything and is in control of everything, and yet we reject God. Um, and so, going on to verse 19, but I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you je jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, Think of the tension that's there, God's sovereignty over his people who he has called, and yet his frustration over the fact that they have not responded to who he is, even though he's in control of everything. That is a, is a tough thing for us to understand and to hold into tension. He goes on in chapter 11, verse 1, and says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? That's a question that we naturally come to. If God is in control of his people at all times, and has controlled even their ability to accept or reject him, has he, has he preemptively rejected them by causing them to reject him? It's a complicated problem uh, to, to sort through, but what is his answer? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I want you to notice that Paul sees himself as somebody who was called out of his sin unwillingly by grace. And it wasn't, he was trying to obey God and failing miserably because what, what, what happened, he was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. 
Like that was his intent. People who believed in Jesus, he was trying to kill them. And what did God do? He said, nope. Not going to happen. Why? Because I've called you to be my son. And I've called you to be a witness for my name to the Gentiles. Paul understands this concept better than most of us do because he was destined for destruction and yet God, before the foundation of the world, he knows that God knew that was going to happen and he preordained it so that it would happen. And now Paul is a believer because God is in control. Paul understands this very very much. And so in, in chapter 11, 1 through 10, Paul offers himself as an example of the elect by grace. Let's keep reading. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Very difficult verses to read that God uh, causes his people to not understand who he is and, and to reject him. Verse 11, it leads to, it leads to another important question that, that tends to be on our minds. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Like, did God cause them to stumble so that they would fall? What is his answer? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. For if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Uh, now, verses 11 through 32 to the end of, of the chapter, uh, the main theme here is that Israel's unbelief is temporary. Someday God is going to bring them back to himself as a whole. Uh, let's keep on reading. Oh, and you're going to see this, this concept of a root. I want you to, to, to watch for it. Um, what is the root? I'll tell you up front so that you can be watching for it. I believe the root here is God's promise. God's promise to sustain his people. God's promise to save his people. And so when you're, you become unattached from the root, it causes death. Watch, watch what he does here with this illustration. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their what? Because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen. How does one fall? Unbelief. But kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. How do you continue in God's kindness? By belief. 
Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, it's a it's an illustration we may not understand because we don't really understand olive trees, but what Paul is using this illustration to, to illustrate is the fact that the root, God's promise to save those who believe in his son Jesus Christ for their salvation is effective and will, will endure forever. And, the, and what you need to do is believe in him to remain attached to the root. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Paul envisions a time in the future when God will steer the hearts of his people back to him. Right now he's claiming that most, is, most of Israel, and he's, he uses the words all Israel, has, has stumbled and they don't believe. And the reality is he's an Israelite and he believes, and there are actually hundreds and thousands of people that, that we know of from Acts that are Israelites who believed. Um, but so when he says all Israel will be saved, he's envisioning a time when Again, most of Israel will come back and believe in Jesus. The deliverer will, will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take their sins away. How is it that God is going to bring his people back from them? He's going to act on them himself. He's going to banish ungodliness. That's an act of God. And he's going to take away their sins. Also an act of God. It is God who accomplishes our salvation. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I want you to remember chapter 9, verse 3, um, what Paul said there. This connects to that. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Remember he said, For I, wish that I, I could wish that I myself were accursed, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Like, Paul could wish that all he wants, but he knows that it's not possible because God ordained before the foundation of the world that he would be in him, and Paul is now in him. That doesn't change the fact that he still anguishes over the fact that his fellow Israelites do not believe. For just as you at one time, verse 30, were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And I want you to notice that tension between mercy and disobedience there. Um, like all of us are disobedient. He no noticed that all of us are disobedient and yet some of us receive mercy. At the heart of God's sovereignty is his mercy. And it's easy to get lost in the fact that God chooses some for eternal destruction. That's a hard thing for us to understand. But it's also easy to forget that God chooses some for mercy, and he doesn't have to when no one deserves it. Not a single one of us in this room deserves his mercy, and yet God has chosen for you to hear about his love and his mercy, and has given you the opportunity to respond this morning. Will you? It's also easy to forget that the choice to extend mercy came before time began. 
Understand the implications of that, if you will. That God, that Jesus Christ, who is God over all, spoke into existence a creation that he knew would reject him. And he foreordained the fact that he was going to get nailed to a cross and die for our sins. It's easy to lose that thought in the ugliness of the wrath of God. But the reality is, it is a beautiful thing, and it is something that I'm thankful for, that I don't control my salvation. That God somehow reached out and said, nope. I'm going to call you to myself. And he saved me through his death, burial, and resurrection. I hope that that is something that you can understand and believe that you see the threat of the gospel and the importance of that in your life today. Whether it is you've never believed the gospel before, or whether you believe the gospel, but you struggle with the sovereignty of God. I hope that you can see the thread of his mercy uh, in all of this. As the worship team comes back, let's remind ourselves of why it is so important. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.